Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 150 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we trek across the world to locate the cocktail gurus and spirited senseis who will help you take your drinks game to the next level. Before I jump into the episode at hand, though, I want to tell you a quick little story that begins as a bit of a mystery, but ends, I'm happy to report, quite happily. A few days ago, I was watching emails pop into my inbox like it was some sort of crazy active Twitter feed, you know, like you do, when I saw one email come through that perplexed me just a little. It was an email from UPS telling me that I had a package scheduled to arrive at our facility the next day, and yet... With all the orders we have coming in and going out, I couldn't figure out what this package might be. The only detail UPS would give me is that it weighed five pounds, and everything we receive is usually significantly heavier than that, or significantly lighter. So I asked my wife if she might have, you know, mistakenly sent something to the facility. Then I checked with my business partners, nothing. Nobody had a clue. So as I lay in bed that night, I was simultaneously perplexed and a little scared about what this package could be. All right, that's an exaggeration. I actually slept fine, but I was still really damn curious about what lay in store for me the next day. Fast forward a dozen hours or so, and I get another email notification while sitting in traffic telling me that my package had just beat me to our facility. So I fought my way through said bizarre DC traffic, which has been all messed up lately for a number of reasons you might be familiar with if you follow the news. I parked and then I arrived to confront the box. I looked at it from across the room, normal sized package. I tiptoed up to it and listened carefully to see if it might be whining or perhaps ticking. It wasn't, which eliminated puppies and cartoon bombs from my list of possible options. Imagine my surprise when I opened it to find a very pretty box with German writing on it, accompanied by a beautiful bottle of lilac gin, which I'm currently enjoying as I record this, and a really nice note from Adam in Texas, who's been a longtime listener of the podcast. To say that this made my day would be a massive understatement because that box with the German writing contained a beautiful, compact, clear ice system designed for folks like me with limited ice storage options to make professional quality ice in the home. To be precise, the brand is called Dice, as in D-Ice, and the product is called Glass Klar, as in clear ice. I'll post some pictures over on the show notes page because you know I unpacked that bad boy and filled it up as soon as I got home. In his note, Adam mentioned a couple things I want to share with you. First, he says, your skill as a host and production quality are showing the polish of a lot of hard work and personal investment, which is incredibly kind of you to say, Adam. Everything on the audio side can be attributed to painful trial and error on the equipment front and, of course, the 
incredible talents of our audio editor, Sammy Reed, who is just an absolute whiz. And in terms of the hosting, well, I guess that's just experience. I personally listen to every episode I record, and I still find plenty of places where I could do a much better job. So hopefully we'll keep edging up the quality of the podcast as time goes on. Then also pertaining to the ice mold, Adam mentioned that he heard me bemoaning my lack of freezer space in a recent episode and was inspired to send along the best clear ice mold he's come across in his extensive experience trying different options. Now, I'm not saying, everyone listening out there, that you need to track down the modern bar cart address and ship me lavish gifts like Adam did, but damn, it absolutely made my day. On our end, with this huge uptick in e-commerce traffic during the quarantine, we here at Modern Bar Cart have doubled down this past month or so to almost double our glassware and cocktail mixer offerings on the e-commerce store, and we'll be adding a few more fun glassware pieces in the next week or so, so keep your eyes out for that. Thank you from the bottom of my heart to Adam for this generous gift, and please know that we're working super hard on our end to make sure that we're building a cocktail marketplace that can serve all your needs as we shift to a more home bartender-centric model of cocktails, at least for the time being. Now, all that said, this episode's guest is an incredibly interesting dude. His name is Sean Sewell, and he's the author of two great cocktail books, the first called Cocktail Culture and the second entitled Great Northern Cocktails, which is the primary focus of this here interview. Sean is a bartender's bartender, and his story is a really compelling example of how hard work and dedication can generate a lot of respect and well-deserved recognition in the cocktail world. But before we jump into Sean's story and the stories he tells about Canada's diverse cocktail culture, let's pause and give you, as we like to do here, the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Toronto Cocktail. It's something we go deep on later in this conversation, so I won't go much further than offering you the recipe. To make it, you'll need two ounces of Canadian whiskey, but if you're in the US market and struggling to identify a good quality Canadian whiskey, then a nice bottle of rye, something like an old Overholt or an equivalent would be an appropriate substitute. One quarter ounce of Fernet Branca, one quarter ounce of simple syrup, and then one to two dashes of aromatic bitters. Angostura is traditional here, but feel free to use our embitterment aromatic bitters for a slightly different take on the drink. Combine all of these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir for about 20 seconds until everything is well chilled and diluted, strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, and garnish with an expressed orange twist. As you can see, the Toronto cocktail sort of wedges itself in between an old-fashioned and a Manhattan. The Fernet could be seen as either a very bitter, lightly sweet vermouth, this would be the Manhattan interpretation, or as an additional bitter with enough sugar to warrant cutting your simple syrup. This would be the old-fashioned interpretation. Sean had a hand in bringing this drink to the forefront as a result of his thorough historical research, so as I mentioned, we'll dig into it in greater depth during this interview. 
Speaking of which, some of the other things we discuss in this wide-ranging conversation include how Sean made his way to Victoria, British Columbia by way of Australia, and how he explains his city's disproportionate influence on the cocktail world relative to its size. Why he and his team at Clive's Cocktail Lounge in Victoria decided to embark on the ambitious project called Homage Cocktail Fridays of recreating almost 100 famous cocktail menus from cocktail bars around the world. The way Sean was able to hustle, literally hustle, for the opportunity to work with some of the world's most influential cocktail ambassadors like Jeffrey Morgenthaler and Philip Duff what Canada has to offer on the cocktail front, highlighting some of the people, places, and flavors featured in Great Northern Cocktails to show all of us quarantined Americans what we're missing out on north of the border. How to plan your next vacation to the Great White North so that you're certain to strategically hit the best food and drink venues that each city has to offer. What Sean talks about on his own awesome podcast, The Post Shift Podcast, and much, much more. Sean is a really well-spoken guy, and the one thing that absolutely pervaded this interview is his passion for drinks and the people who are responsible for bringing them to life. I highly recommend that you check out his show, The Post Shift Podcast, especially if you're contemplating a career in the service industry, and I couldn't be happier to present this interview to you. So with that, please grab yourself a drink and enjoy this excellent conversation with my friend and yours, acclaimed bartender, podcaster, and spirits educator, Sean Sewell. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Can you, well, I guess, let me let me back up and say normally what we do is that we, we start <laughs> this podcast by uh, having people introduce themselves, but I kind of want to intentionally bury the lead here because you have a great story that seems to be situated in a very special place. So how about we start with you describing Victoria, British Columbia, and the cocktail scene there, and maybe how you came to be a part of it. Um, so I came to Canada from Australia. Obviously, you can tell I haven't got a Canadian accent. Um, I came to Canada in 2006, and Victoria is a very, very small city. We're the capital of British Columbia, but there's only about 365,000 people in the city, and that's spread over a substantial area, um, which we can get into Singapore later because I was in Singapore last year, and Singapore fits into our what we class as our city seven times. So it's a really spread out area with a small amount of people, about a hundred thousand people live downtown, um, which is really nothing. Um, so I got here in 2006 and uh, in about 2009, 10 um, cocktail culture started like clicking a little bit. And I took over a little cocktail bar in a hotel called Clive's classic lounge. And uh, from there, we sort of grew. I had people start opening up other cocktail bars and we sort of partnered up and we, we have a really great culture here. Um, it's a very much, very much like a very big family. And so it sort of just spread organically to three or four bars and then it became five, it became six, it became seven. Um, and so it was a great thing was, is that everybody just works with each other. So splitting cases of alcohol from the, the liquor stores and all that sort of stuff. No one ever saw anybody as a competitor. Everybody just was like, we're, we're going for a cocktail culture that is all inclusive. And so even though we have a small city and a small town, um, we've done pretty well to put ourselves on the map in Canada and worldwide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, ostensibly you're 
also a cocktail author. We'll be speaking about um, your latest book here in a few minutes, but it's it's funny reading the uh, forewords to your book. You, you managed to get some pretty <laughs> impressive people, Jeffrey Morgan Thaler, Philip Duff, uh, to kind of comment on the scene there. So um, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to speak a little bit more about Victoria, BC as like this little city with a disproportionate gravitational pull on the cocktail space? <laughs> um, we've been pretty lucky. Uh, when I was at Clive's Classic Lounge, I, this is the, so 2009, like really was the start of like Facebook for real. Like Facebook been around for three or four years, but like really, really peaked in that sort of time frame. So there was a lot of times that I would ask people cold call if they'd come up and do seminars. Um, I've been lucky enough at Clive's to, to host Philip a couple of times, Jeffrey a couple of times, Jacob Breyers, Angus Winchester, um, a whole bunch of people. Like Angus Winchester came up purely on a on a bluff. He had five days um, downtime in Seattle, and he messages me and like, I got five days in Seattle downtown time. Do you want me to pop over? And was so close, he just jumped on a little seaplane and away we went. Um, and then in 2011, 2012, Clive's actually got nominated in the top four best hotel bars in the world at Tails, and so. Um, it's the only Canadian bar ever to hit a top four position in any category at Tails. And so that sort of helped us build. Um, but we just did some fun things there, lots of seminars. We did seminars for general public and and uh, the industry. I think the biggest one looking back was probably um, our Homage Cocktail Fridays. So Homage Cocktail Friday, every Friday. Now, when I took over Clive's, we, it was a very small hotel bar, just been renovated, um, and it went from like a British pub to this high-end European lounge. And so there was a whole period of probably 18 months where on Saturday night, I was ringing out 120 bucks by myself, not in tips, like $120 in sales. And I'd had like four customers. And so we started thinking of these interesting ways to grab people and to educate people. And uh, it, general public education was just as important as industry education. And so we sort of did this homage cocktail Friday where we took a cocktail menu from a very famous bar somewhere else in the world and did it. We did that for, I think we did something close to 85, 90 homage cocktail Fridays, which is a lot of bars and doing it every single Friday. Like you're in, you're in the business. So you know what sort of timeframes bartenders have that the, the, when you say I need it right away, right away means like two, two and a half weeks for most bartenders. And so, um, that was the big thing is that we started doing these, these special menus and people came in to try cocktails from Germany, from the UK, from Australia, from New Zealand. And that sort of gained notoriety because all of a sudden you have a bartender in Barcelona who's getting hit up by a little cocktail bar in Victoria, BC. And so it built like that. And so I'm lucky enough that I've traveled and, and done some events with Philip. Philip and I are very good friends. And and so am I with Jeffrey. And the fortunate thing is I'm just allowed to hit him up and go, hey, you want to write the forward to my book? And they're like, yeah, of course, buddy. No problems at all. Right, right, right. Uh <laughs> 
Yeah, wow. Um, a couple things I want to dig into here. One, obviously, uh, you know, for folks listening who are not in the industry, you know, a one-week turnaround to learn an entire cocktail menu and then execute said menu with any sort of semblance of effectiveness is is a tall order uh, for any bar team out there, and especially to have the ambitious task of then needing to completely bleach your brain of last week's menu and now reabsorb a complete new menu uh, <laughs> that's that's not something that you you really see too too many places and on top of that it seems like this project right this this um this little convention that you set for yourself where you say okay we're going to take a menu from somewhere else and we're going to spit it out here it seems like that also was a great way for you to gain connections in a way that wasn't phony that wasn't like uh, you know rubbing al- rubbing elbows at a, mm-hmm. an official function right so um, yeah, that, that must have been just a tremendous uh, task for you and your team. How did you pull it off? Uh, there was a time where I, I still do, but there was, there's a time where I was working 100 hours a week, six, six and a half days a week. Um, but we didn't really have a choice. Like, I didn't have a stake in the game when it came to ownership or anything of Clive's, but I saw coming from Australia, we have a great cocktail culture in Australia. And I, I was lucky enough to come up through the ranks in Australia. But when I got to Canada, it wasn't until 2009, 2010 that most of Canada didn't have a good cocktail bar. Um, and so for me, I had a three a three a year buffer there that I worked at a different restaurant as the assistant general manager at a, like a little franchise place. But when I took over in 2009, I was like, it was that upward swing of North America's cocktail culture sort of building and growing. And I was like, I, I really want to do this. And there was a couple of other cocktail bars opening up in Victoria. And I was like, I really want to make sure that we're the best, we're the hub of the cocktail scene in Victoria to sort of create and continue to build this. And so for me, it was, I didn't have a choice in the, in the matter per se, it had to, it had to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds very martyrish, but it's one of those things is like, if you, I always look at, do you want to work hard, really hard for, six to 12 months and achieve your goal or do you want to work like 40 hours a week and take two and a half three years to achieve it so um i saw the opportunity in victoria the consumer was ready like ready and willing for it and uh so we just doubled down on everything Mm. Yeah, and that 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 completely makes sense to me, right? You're talking about doubling down, um, and I, I think you know the way you're speaking right now kind of almost seems like a, an investor, right? Talking about money, but what you're talking about is time and energy. And it seemed like with the the advent of Facebook and with the surge of cocktail culture in North America, you you hit everything at the right time, so it made sense to do that doubling down on obviously it turned out wonderfully um so let's transition now to talk a little bit about your first book um and then you know maybe maybe the way that you you kind of uh grew your influence beyond bc to you know to meet the jeffrey morgan thalers and the philip duffs of the world um so uh, the first cocktail book, uh, Cocktail Culture, I was written up in a in a BC tourism magazine and the publisher saw it and they hit me up on Facebook actually and was like, hey, we'd love to chat to you about doing a cocktail book for Victoria. And at the time, um, again, like Victoria, this was 20, 2011, 2012, we were, we were starting to get the upward slide, but still, we're still a small city now, 10 years later. But they're like, we really like to chat to you about um doing this cocktail book all about victoria and i'm like okay cool and we sort of went on the process of finding all the bartenders doing something special again we're like i said we're a very family orientated sort of 
culture and industry here. So everybody was going to get involved regardless. Um, and we sort of built that out. The the real the real twist was we did a cocktail co- uh, cocktail festival here in Victoria called Art of the Cocktail, and still around. But in 2010 2011 was when it sort of really kicked off, and that's when I started leveraging my network from tales and from events and stuff like that to um, get these people up here. So we've had David Wondrich come to Victoria. We've had a whole track line. Phil, I think Phillips come back almost every single year while I was organizing that festival. He really um, loves Canada. But he really does. He love really Canada. does love Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 my, mine and Phil's relationship is an interesting one. Um, when Javine Gin first launched in, in Canada, Victoria was one of the first places that launched. And I remember talking to the rep and it's always a great story because Philip always underestimates how much work he gave me that day. But um, I talked to the rep and was like, so what do you want to taste? He's like, I'll taste all the individual botanicals and we'll taste the gins and we'll go from there. I'm like, cool. That's 25 people for industry, 25 people for general public. That's eight glasses per. I'm like, cool. Um, and at 10.30, we sat down and had coffee with Philip. He just got into town and he's like, okay, so I want to do five cocktails during this session as well. I'm like, excuse me, what? And so I had to try and track down 125 pieces of glassware for the session in two hours plus ingredients to batch um, and then flip it all and do a general public that night. And it was like a 16-hour day. And and the hard thing was I had everything set up, ready to go. I got in early. I set it all up, ready to rock and roll. And then he just drops this bomb on me. And so, But then at the end of it, um, he sits me down and is like, listen, I really appreciate all the work you did today. Do you want to come to France with me? And I'm 29, 30 years old right there. And he's like, do you want to come to France with me and run the GCP, the Javine Connoisseurs Program in, in Cognac? Um 40 bartenders from around the world world-class style world-class Diageo style event um you'll be hanging out with Gary Reagan and uh this person this person this person I'm like yeah sure and so he flew me with Javine to uh to Cognac and we hung out for four or five days there and then London bar week was just after that so we went to London and I we went to Amsterdam to his house and Rotterdam and all these different places and we did this like 11 day tour together uh five countries and multiple cities and and that's how my relationship with philip grew um but that's probably the funniest story and then jeffrey and i uh in 2009 or 10 um we actually got selected to go to the bnic cognac summit and uh, it's a big cognac summit in, in in cognac and it's a training program now which i'm actually supposed to be at right now if it wasn't for covid um but we're both sitting there and this is before jeffrey was jeffrey it was it was that time when his blog was still kicking off and we're sitting in amsterdam we land in amsterdam and we're sitting there having a beer and a coffee so it's like a heineken and an espresso because we're just exhausted we're sipping and sipping and uh we're both sitting there and it's like do you feel like a fraud He's like, yes, I feel like a fraud. Like, why did they invite us on this thing? <laughs> and so that's how our relation. And then we spent a week in France on probably one of the most amazing trips I've ever been on. So Salvatore Calabresi, Peter Dorelli, Francesca Lafroni, Doug Frost, um, Eric Alperin, Alex Cretina, like the list, uh, Julie Reiner, Sasha Petreski. And we're all just hanging out in cognac for a week. And so th- that sort of clincher there, those two years, that year, year and a half, 
really took my personal career, but also my attachment to Clive's to a, a completely different level. Right, right. And, uh, you know, it's something I've struggled with too. I, 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 um, I've mentioned this uh, maybe in the past, but I, I personally feel like a very poorly connected person. And the podcast has obviously been a great way to just, you know, reach out and and, and meet people and, and get connected. But um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's crazy once you start getting, you know, with the right people, with people who you not only respect, but people who have this, um, you, you know, uh, almost like a kinetic energy about them, people who are, you know, people who are willing to take that input of like, hey, I need uh, 125 more glasses. Uh, and we need those in a couple hours. You can do that, right? So if, if, you, if you can say yes to that type of energy, uh, it's it's crazy how, you know, you can find yourself in situations where you're sitting next to people that you just feel you feel like a fraud with. I, I felt the same thing when I was sitting next to Jeff Barry judging rum at the American Distilling yeah. Institute. I'm like, this guy wrote Sip and Safari, and I'm just I'm just me, you know. I'm not I'm a mere mortal, uh, so I, I can relate. And I think it's um, you know I think that's how you how you grow is you you, you kind of push yourself and stretch. Um, so. We're here ostensibly uh, to talk about your book, Great Northern Cocktails. All right. So you've told us a story of Clive's. You've told us the story of how you've kind of infiltrated the industry and forged these connections <laughs> with the right people. Um, and now I think the the most important question to kick us off on this path of the book is what if anything, characterizes a northern cocktail, right? Because we, we we understand that tiki cocktails, we understand that tiki cocktails somehow orbit the equator, but if we're not hanging out around the equator, if we're hanging out near the, you know, in the great white north, what does that even mean? Oh, that's a tough one. It's, it's a little existential because uh, great northern cocktails is really a collaboration and a push for the bartenders in Canada over the cocktails they create um i think uh, showcasing the bartenders like in unison with their cocktails is an important sort of story because i think a lot of people don't understand canada in general it's huge like it's absolutely massive like i was talking to my daughter the other day and like explained to her that new york city has the same population as Alberta and BC combined, like two of our biggest provinces have 5.5 million people and New York has 5.5 million people. So um, it's interesting to sh sort of showcase where these cocktails came from, the, di the dynamic way these bartenders are sort of looking at it because we are a big melting pot because we're sort of spread out. It, it reminds me a lot like Australia that we're sort of this, this island, even though we're attached to the US, but we're the sort of island that no one pays much mind to, but really showcases local ingredients and terroir-driven cocktails and um, interesting techniques that these bartenders have picked up from liquor.com and, and blogs and reading books and stuff like that. And then they're putting them into play in Winnipeg. Um, so I think the definition of Great Northern Cocktails is really just showcasing what Canada has to offer and how we offer it over anything else. Right, right. And, um, you know, that that's one style of cocktail book that is out there. Uh, it is not the kind that I think I would ever consider writing because, man, 
the the number of people you had to collaborate with to make this book a reality. I mean, you must have had uh, some sort of crazy spreadsheet or some sort of crazy tracking system to get this thing across the finish line, right? That, and combine that with the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, that you know bartenders are sometimes a little bit wishy-washy on deadlines, right? So th this must have been a, a huge feat to source all of these recipes from the various provinces of Canada. Um, so like, what was that process like for you? <laughs> a tedious one. <laughs> <laughs> um, some bartenders got back to me straight away. Uh, ones that have really got a good personal brand and reputation, they sort of like bang straight away. That filled out about 50% of the book. And then it started becoming a... Uh, email facebook instagram message like every couple of weeks and then as we got closer to the deadline it was like okay so this is every couple of days like hey i still need this or i still need that um i don't think i dropped any if i did it might be one or two bartenders that just never responded to anything that i sent but i'm hoping that uh, this book will continue to sort of evolve and continue like i, I don't i don't see it as a a one-time publish i think it's something that will update every two years which will i'm not sure why i would put that myself through that <laughs> continuously for the next decade um but i think it, for me it go it does go back to that it's not really a book that I would normally write, but it, it has the same sort of same sort of feeling behind it as, as cocktail culture did. That it was showcasing bartenders that people may not know or understand or see, and it's not necessarily about the venue per se. It's really about the city they exist in and the people that make that city so vibrant. Because we are so spread out, like Edmonton and Calgary, a couple of hours apart, but they're really vibrant cool cocktail cities you got saskatoon in the middle of nowhere on the prairie same thing with winnipeg to a degree um halifax is just killing it right now like halifax i f find is like the mirror image of vancouver island and victoria um so there's just so many people out there and i think that i probably missed i the next issue i'm probably looking at probably adding maybe 50 to 75 new bartenders in the next issue um but, but really, it comes down to that bartender's story, where they came from, and how that influences their cocktail that goes in the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing that strikes me, obviously, there's, a, there's one very distinct similarity uh, between Australia and Canada. Obviously, they are both uh, former British kind of con controlled uh, countries, and, and as such, uh, I think that they were primed very early on in their histories uh, to be sort of melting pots uh, in, in slightly different ways between Australia and Canada. But I think, you know, I definitely agree with the, uh, the diversity aspect. I myself, uh, you probably don't know this, but I myself am half Quebecois. Uh, and so I spent my childhood taking road trips uh, from Western Mass, about 10, 10 hour road trips from Western Massachusetts up to uh, up to near Quebec City, uh, where I would stay with my great aunt and my great uncle uh, on, a, on a lake in Quebec. And it is very different uh, from from the states. It, it, spread out is is one way to put it, uh, <laughs> but I don't think that for most people, most Americans anyway, most pe most people don't really have a concept of how truly spread out it is. And and so in that respect, having a concentrated cocktail culture in any given place is a real not a miracle, but it's a it's a real achievement. Uh, and so mm -hmm. um, what I what I wanted to maybe talk about now is um, to allow you to 
kind of give me a better picture of what drinking culture in Canada or cocktail culture in Canada is actually like, because again, my experience is driving up there and stopping right on the other side of the border and picking up a case of Labatt Blue. And that was the extent <laughs> of drinking culture was Labatt. Uh, so, so what about maybe like the, maybe we can talk about like the Toronto cocktail and the bloody Caesar. Yeah. The, the Caesar is always like the Caesar is always going to be one of these drinks that is epitome of, of, uh, Canadian culture. Unfortunately, um, I, I like a good Caesar first thing in the morning during brunch, anytime after like two o'clock in the afternoon in on the weekends anytime after 12 during the weekdays i think it's inappropriate but that's just my personal opinion on the caesar um i think that's always going to have a a solid movement but i think in in the last 10 years with the the explosion of craft beer and and local wine and all these sort of things and everything like niagara falls and niagara wine region being so close to toronto and okanagan and bc um I think locality has become a big focus for a lot of just for a lot of bartenders. And so they're using the local spirits and wine and beer as part of their programs. And I think terroir driven, and I think it's just, it's an expansion of who, where your farm to table food is and your restaurants like that. And I think it's just an expansion of that. And I think more and more people are, are willing to try new things all the time. And that, mainly that's consumerism over what bartenders want to sort of push. But I think when bartenders really want to back something and push something, they tend to really force it. Like um, there's compass. Is it compass? No collective arts, collective arts in Toronto is absolutely usual, huge brewery that turned into a distillery. Bartenders absolutely, absolutely love collective arts in Toronto. They've backed it and it's become a, a real bartender back brand and so i think when you get the bartenders hooked on something then they're going to push it for their consumers and then consumers start looking at different things and they start educating themselves on craft beer and craft spirits and it sort of explodes out from there i think consumer education hand in hand needs to be as important as bartender education if you put all your all your time and effort it's in the bartender education it's great but if you train the consumer as well, everybody sort of comes up at the same level. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. That's kind of what this podcast is about. We have a, a pretty even split between uh, industry professional listeners and, and um, home enthusiasts. So that's kind of exactly what we try to do here. Um, one note on Canadian beer, and this is for folks here in the U.S., um, I'm a big fan of Belgians. And uh, up in Quebec, obviously, we have Unibrew, uh, B-R-O-U-E. En français, uh, <laughs> spell it correctly. And uh, for folks here in the United States, one of the things that I found maybe about a year ago, uh, and I'm guessing it's still the case, is that Unibrew was actually the co-packer of all of the Trader Joe's Belgian-style beers with the Trader Joe's um, kind of you know generic brand on them. So mm -hmm. if you're in a Trader Joe's, their Belgians are amazing. So pick up those because they're made by kind of the masters uh, in Canada. Uh, so for what it's worth, Canadian beer, uh, definitely been making a comeback. Um, how about the Toronto cocktail? I seem to have remember reading something somewhere that, that you were uh, responsible for, um, you know, kind of a resurgence in that sphere. 
Uh, that one's an interesting one because uh, Jamie Boudreau from Canon in Seattle, he actually is a Vancouver bartender originally, and he moved to Seattle with his wife, who's, who's American, and he opened up um, Canon. And he was a big proponent for the Toronto for many, many years. Um, and then I did a cocktail seminar at Tales, I think 2012. Yeah, I think it was 2012 about um, cocktail culture, not be- uh, Canadian cocktails not being an oxymoron, like classic Canadian cocktails, because people always think of the, the Caesar and that's pretty much the extent of it. Um, but we have a Vancouver cocktail. We have a Toronto cocktail. So we started delving in. And, and again, 2012, we really have to remember, like there was blogs and, and the internet was um, a good resource, but still nothing like it is now in 2020. And so... My friend who collects, uh, my best friend who collects uh, antique cocktail books and reproductions, he started doing. I remember very clearly. I was at Clive's working a Friday night. We're just getting stomped, and he just belts in, in like into the bar, like runs up to the bar and throws me a book, and it's Robert Vermeer's cocktail book from nineteen twenty four, I think. 1924 Robert Vermeer's cocktail book reproduction, and there's a cocktail in there called Fernet cocktail. And it's the exact same recipe for the Toronto cocktail, but there's a quote at the very bottom that says, this cocktail is enjoyed by Canadians from Toronto. And so then we started researching Robert Vermeer and his exp- and where he'd come from and how he'd sort of done all this. Um, I was at the time when we were really researching the Toronto cocktail, researching like Italian immigrants into the New York because David Embry was the the first person to list it as the Toronto cocktail. So I was like, okay, well, maybe an Italian immigrant brought over, like smuggled in some Fernet Bronca. And then I found out that Fernet Bronca actually had a distillery in New York during that time as well. So Fernet Bronca had set up a distillery. So we were, I was like mapping immigration patterns, Italian immigration patterns into New York in the twenties and thirties um, and the whole shebang. But then we found this quote and we sort of uh, said that, Vermeer worked in a lot of resorts. His family had a resort in Belgium. And my sort of thought processes or my hypothesis was that um, a bunch of Canadians came in. He did an off-the-cuff cocktail, called it the Fernet cocktail because Fernet Bronca is a, a main ingredient and really the clinch pin. It's sort of like a mere pecan in Brooklyn's um, and put that quote in his cocktail book. And I think that's sort of what it was, a touristy group from Canada sitting at the bar, makes an off-the-cuff and... The, the Toronto was born and then slowly but surely it would have evolved and David Embry would have picked it up and, and called it the Toronto. So there's a gap there between Vimeer and, and Embry, but uh, I think it's a great story. And I, I love the fact that in 2012, we found this sort of random quote and we took full ownership on what the, uh, what the, um, Toronto cocktail was. It's the same thing we did the Hotel Georgia cocktail from Vancouver as well, which was a big one. That was a, uh, I think there was an Embry as well. That was the first mention of the dry shake. And so we did a whole bunch of these classic Canadian cocktails and sort of showcased where we'd actually come from. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you say, you know, oh, well, there's a gap between these two authors, but like certainly the gap that you're describing historically is not the biggest gap that we experience in <laughs> when trying to trace back the the origins of certain cocktails. So it's like, you know, obviously if you're talking to somebody like a David Wondrich or somebody who's done all this deep research, I, I feel like it probably wasn't all that hard of a sell when you were when you were able to, you know, do, you know, kind of do your diligence on it. Well, no, and that's the thing is David Embry was uh, this amazing sort of um, uh, 
accountant and lawyer and all this sort of at home thing. So the amount of people that he would have had in his inner circle would have been extensive. And uh, it wasn't Embry who did the Hotel Georgia. Sorry, I just clicked something else and I've forgotten the guy's name because it was a big part of that seminar. But no, 22 years back then wasn't very long at all. Like to travel all the way from Europe to New York, it wasn't very long. It's like 22 seconds as it is now. Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. Um, Wow, wow. Um, So you've done a ton of work on both the classic cocktails and then also obviously with great Northern cocktails, you're highlighting um, obviously the best stuff that's going on now at bars throughout Canada. I want to get in a second to uh, maybe just some advice you might have for anybody who's thinking about taking a trip to Canada um, and maybe the best ways to seek out the, the best cocktail spots there. But, but first uh, I was just, I wanted to know if there were any trends or ingredients um, that, that jumped out at you when you were um, putting out this book, right? Because here in the United States, we have Florida. Well, we grow oranges and citrus and grapefruits in Florida, mm-hmm. but Canada has some unique constraints in the ingredients front. So I didn't know if there were any ingredients or particular trends in cocktail styles that jumped out as you were compiling this book that you found interesting. It was, it's a broad spectrum because, um, I had a young bartender from Winnipeg, give me this crazy, um, devil's breakfast, I think, or death by breakfast. And it's served in a, in a cereal bowl with fruit loops and a fruit loop bourgeois and a few other things. And it's a small little bar called the roost in Winnipeg. And you're just like, where did you get all this stuff? And then on the flip side, I had an award-winning bartender from Montreal who's based in London now throw me a recipe for her favorite drink, uh, her favorite recipe for a dirty martini. And I messaged her back. I'm like, this is what you want to go with. She's like, yep, I love this drink. This is the one I want to have. And so you had this sort of weird dichotomy of super young bartenders in a really small, weird little market, giving me just like ridiculously elevated, crazy high-end cocktails. And then you have award-winning bartenders in big cities going, you know what? No, I just want a Negroni variation Mm -hmm. or an old-fashioned variation or a dirty martini variation. And so it was great to sort of see the spectrum of how everybody sort of flowed. And I think Canada is really difficult because most of our liquor boards are government controlled. And so accessing a lot of things is not the easiest thing. Like we have a lot of things to act like to offer into access but to actually get them from the government liquor board can be sometimes a pain in the ass especially if you want to do it over a a multiple amount of times um you might get one case but the second case might be a real might be difficult to get um and so I, i i saw a trend like more local stuff which is always a little bit more difficult when it comes to a cocktail book because it's very specific to that city that bartender it can't be replicated as easy as possible like i think i had some weird um uh, Quebec Amaro's thrown in the recipes and I'm like, huh, I can't get those in BC. I'm, <laughs> this is going to be a difficult one. For, <laughs> it's going to be a difficult one for anybody in the U S to read. Um, but I think the the great spread was it shows the individual cultures in each individual city, how they're evolving bit by bit. Like you talk about Tiki and I, I see uh, cocktail culture in every city sort of has to go on a, a sort of, uh, 
uh, an arc where you start off with the classic cocktail bars and you have a tiki bar and you have a tequila bar and you have a whiskey bar and and it sort of progresses into molecular mixology and super high-end vested bow tie sort of service and so it has this massive arc and so each city in in canada is sort of at a different stage in this arc and so you get this sort of trend coming out of like halifax is very much like victoria as i was saying before because we have so many local ingredients foragers and crazy people that you might not have access to in toronto or montreal where you have a a dude in in a a coverall show up at your restaurant door knock on your door and he's got a whole track load of foraged ingredients he's like how much do you want of each which we have in victoria we have a dedicated forager for most of the restaurants here so you gain like wild rose petals and uh flowering current flowers and all this sort of stuff and so you gain all these crazy ingredients to play with and so you sort of see it depending on the city like toronto is very cosmopolitan same with vancouver so you can see those cocktails being very much more geared to the consumer that goes there um like botanist in vancouver grant Sini there did a crazy one with a mushroom uh syrup which wasn't the only mushroom syrup we had in the book which was very weird and they do a lot of um very elaborate staging with dry ice and avery's and all this sort of crazy stuff and so but then you have the next recipe along is basically a brooklyn variation using a local amere pecan so it's 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 night and day when it comes to the, the cocktail styles throughout throughout canada yeah that's interesting now this this forager it seems this seems like a picky detail to to focus on this forager. Do you have one forager for the entire city, or does each restaurant have a, a person who forages for these ingredients? To be honest with you, in Victoria, we actually have one forager. He has like a, a little team of like three or four people, and um, Lance will go out and you can make a request on what you want, and he'll go looking for it, or he'll just show up and is like, "Listen, we've only got a week of." wild rose petals right now so we went out and just blew through as many wild wild rose petals we possibly could here's a couple of bags and so i've had everything from like wild mint dropped off to make a mint liqueur like a wild mint liqueur and all these sort of things so um yeah in victoria we're lucky enough we have this one crazy forager who is a as a team and he'll spread them out all over around our little rural areas and go and pick a whole bunch of stuff for restaurants and bars well next time you talk to lance let him know (laughs) i want him on the podcast because i I can't imagine a more bizarre and interesting interview than the one guy who forages for all of victoria's bars uh i think i can make that i can i can make that happen that's good i think he should write a book too or maybe like at least uh do a good instagram account i hope he's i'm gonna look for him on instagram and see if he uh see if i can find his little photo accounts of of his various foraging uh exploits so that that's fascinating um so sean let's let's now uh talk a little bit about uh what somebody uh let's let's assume this traveler's from the u.s because the majority of my listeners are in the u.s let's imagine somebody uh, on the other end of this little shelter in place pandemic situation that we have on our hands is planning a trip to canada maybe they want to hit one or two cities and uh, they want to make sure that they hit the best cocktail spots. Uh, how would you uh, advise them to, to try and set that up? Um, this is always an interesting one. Um, I could just plug the book and say, get my book and just read that. But um, <laughs> but usually what I, I try and do is obviously social media is always a great reference point. And even when I have people go, I'm going to this place, I'm going to this place, where should I go? I always only give them like two or three selections. And I say, go and sit at the bar, 
strike up a conversation with the bartender and ask them where they should go next. And so for me, it's always, I literally Google best cocktail bars in X city, pick out one good cocktail bar, two cocktail bars that you can sort of go and check out the vibe. Now, obviously top of Google pages, not where I usually go. I usually go towards the end of the first page, if not the second and look for a timeout article or a, a Buzzfeed article or something like that actually legitimizes the cocktail culture. And then I try and make friends with the bartenders and I ask them where to go and I ask them who to talk to. And I, I also was always give the bartender's name as well to people who are going on, like go and see such and such at this bar. They'll probably be on for Friday night. Ask them if they're not there. I'm sure the second bartender or the third bartender will tell you that, uh, where to go next and sort of just build out your thing. Cause you'll always find the craziest little, the craziest little places that won't make those lists. And so you go to the, the one main places and then you find the little crazy little places that uh, may not have made that list that you looked up. Sure. Right. And so that's always, that's always the way I sort of go about it. It's super rudimentary and isn't interesting in an interesting way at all. But I, I kind of see if people are cocktail enthusiasts and they really want to explore cocktail culture in Canada or in a city in Canada, it's always about finding that bartender and gain that relationship with the bartender going. And then you get the best secrets. You get the, the place to go get hot pot at three o'clock in the morning because you've already done four or five cocktail bars. And so that's the sort of building the relationships with the bartenders are always more important than the bars themselves. Right. And uh, I mean, to be honest, that's how I um, got to know the New Orleans cocktail scene, the San Francisco cocktail scene, yep. um, you know, on my various trip to tales and, and the ADI judging events that I've done on the West Coast is you just kind of, you know, you saddle up you uh and, and you know you mentioned you know you are all right well there's probably the head bartender's probably going to be on on a friday night but if you if you have a chance to go on a you know maybe a tuesday night for example when it's less busy you, you might actually uh, have the opportunity to have a more in-depth conversation with whichever bartender is on so really you can't go wrong whatever night you go to the bar that you pick as that one must have experience in that city uh then you can kind of expect to just be in Instructed on how to branch out from there because uh, you're right. Like a lot of the things that you're going to see on the top of your Google search results are going to be these venues that have had time to accrue all of these ratings and hack mm -hmm. the algorithms that allow you, you know, or pay off whichever you know Yelpers you need to to get your your top your top <laughs> spots. Um, however, you know, like what you're mentioning is like one of the things that I think is going to be really big following this pandemic is pop ups because there's going to be mm -hmm. a lot of open space. There's going to be a lot of people who are a little bit skittish about paying rent for a concept that may not go over as well, um, because we don't know exactly how the public is going to respond to going out after this whole situation. Um, so I think you're going to have a lot of pop-ups. And so as things start to open up, um, I, I think the role of the bartender in uh, being a guide for people who are especially traveling from out of town is a completely, completely essential one. And um, for the bartenders listening to this, um, yeah, keep keep your finger on the pulse. As things open up, make sure you share that with people because uh, that's a way that you can have, as a bartender, a disproportionate impact on the venues that you feel deserve attention as, as things are getting off the ground again. I think that's a, a really good point. It's just a nice organic way of doing it. Like you can plan to a certain degree, but I, I've gone to a lot of cities for 18 hours and had like layovers. And so I, I 
try and not plan as much as I want. I have like two or three places that, I, like you said, have to have to hit. Um, like Tommy's in San Francisco, you know you're going to make that trek out to Tommy's, even though it's no nowhere near anything else. You're going to trek out to Tommy's and then trek back downtown. Um, but then you sort of just organically spiderweb it out. And next thing you know, I've, I've had great nights where I've met up with bartenders who are finishing up their shift and they take me out on the town and I go to places that I would never even thought about going to because I didn't know they existed. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so obviously, if you are thinking about visiting the Great White North, uh, please, please, obviously, purchase Sean's book. We'll uh, we'll have uh, obviously links on the show notes page, and also we'll tell you before we sign off here uh, the best ways to find uh, Sean and uh, the book on, in the digital space. But uh, but also just um, you know that's my approach anyway. I, I hate going on trips where everything is super rigid and you have to be here and here by a certain time. I just like picking a couple of highlights and just as long as I get those highlights, everything else can kind of be, as you said, organic and kind of branch out naturally. Um, so the last thing on the agenda that I really wanted to talk about here before the lightning round is you, like me, have a podcast. Uh, so why don't you tell our listeners about your podcast and see if we can't do a little bit of cross pollination here. Um, so I've just actually on um, Tuesday, uh, I've been doing the podcast for 500 days as of Tuesday, and I posted 157 episodes in 500 days. So it's an episode every 3.2 days, which was I thought was quite a nice highlight. Um, during COVID, I've been doing uh, I was doing a, a episode every single day, Monday to Friday, so five episodes a week, um, which usually came from live streams, and then that would go into YouTube and everything else. But the Post Shift Podcast is um, my take on like you like what you do is like interview people find out where they've come from um i always find the most interesting stories even from good friends uh that i have hung out with on numerous occasions um and then on on my tuesday episode so i do two episodes a week usually my friday is my interview episode and then uh, my tuesday episode is usually my um advice rant sort of episode and so i sort of give uh, some advice to young bartenders my demographic is really weird um, I have the same amount of demographic in the like 24 to no 22 to 27 year old age group, as well as the, the 40 to 50 year old age group. So operators are listening to me as well as young bartenders, which I find very, very odd, but uh, I give my advice and stuff that I see coming about um, things that operators should be doing during COVID was a big one. Um, so yeah, the post podcast is sort of my, my hospitality podcast that I started not really sure why i started i just wanted to sort of get to start taking away the perception over the reality i think of the hospitality industry we we get romanced a lot and people looking out looking in sort of see a, a different side of what we are perpetuating um including mental health and all that sort of stuff that i'm a big proponent for so it was sort of like pulling away the curtain on the wizard of oz mm -hmm. and just finding out that the the big mask and the floating mists and all that sort of stuff is just an old dude with a bunch of pedals and strings and uh, sort of pulling back the mask of what the hospitality industry really is and the vulnerability that we have and the strengths that we have as well. So um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a great ride and being a one man show, it's been a long, long learning curve. I think we were talking about it when we first started this about you looking at like online and squad and stuff like that, like learning zoom and restream and streaming to four different platforms and then st stripping audio and then editing audio <laughs> and all these things um, has been a great learning curve, but 
I've come out of it learning more things and, and becoming a better person the more I talk to more people. And I think as an entrepreneur, as a hospitality person, as all these things, is I think that's my main goal is that through interviewing people, I'm hoping that more people are becoming better industry people because of it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, super fascinating on your demographic. I think what that tells you is that, you know, you've got managers who are trying to to kind of like get takeaways to tell their staff and then staff who are motivated enough, you know, the, the young guns <laughs> are also just motivated and out there listening to you. So it seems like you've got a pretty interesting demographic. Um, what are some of your favorite rants? Give us one or two of your rants because I have a couple of episodes that I have labeled as rants. Every once in a while, I will do one. Um, so <laughs> So I'm, I, I want to hear your favorites. Well, I think that we're in the same sort of position. We're hospitality entrepreneurs. So there, there's this one, th like we are saying about herding cats when it comes to industry people. And I think one of my favorite ones was definitely uh, stop using busy as an excuse for being lazy. Um, that was a big one um, that I, I know probably upset a few people when I <laughs> posted that one. Um, but when people say they're busy, I'm like, really? You're busy? You're, you're busy? Like, come on. Um, and I've instilled that into a lot of my, like, I call on my kids, the the younger bartenders here in, in town. Um, I think the five things, the two, the two great ones that I think really had a good impact um, were the five things every operator should be doing during COVID and five things every industry person should be doing during COVID. Um, really just, I think we're taking this opportunity to reset the industry to a degree and we really should be coming out of it better than we went in um, from the macro and the micro. So um, those have been a lot of fun. Uh, and also I do a lot of mental health and, and how I deal with things. Cause I think when you get to a certain level in the industry, there's a certain, it's not a stigma, but a certain um, perception of yourself being a strong independent can to crush through walls and to beat anything and and there's times when there's something that just takes the wind out of your sails and gotcha and i i like to talk about that a lot and try and be as transparent with that as much as i can about negative comments or negativity in general or just being down during covid it's mental health awareness month this month so i'm going to do something today or tomorrow about that um and just show that the younger bartenders who look up to people like myself and aspire to this have to understand that it's taken me 10, 11, 12 years, almost 22 years of my career, but 10 years here in Canada, um, working a hundred hours a week and sacrificing a hell of a lot to, to get to this point when they want it to happen in 18 months. And I'm like, mm. You know, like that's not the way it works, champ. Yeah, you see a sexy uh, celebrity chef on the Food Network, and uh, you think it's uh, it's it's easy, but uh, it's certainly not the way it ends up working out. But um, so yeah, of course, for those listening, we're gonna link to um, Sean's podcast as well as uh, maybe a couple of those episodes that we just dropped uh, over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. So uh, when the show notes page for this episode goes live, you can go ahead and just head right over to your favorite podcast app and check those out. Um, Sean, is there anything else you want to talk about uh, before we jump into some lightning round questions here? I, to be honest, I think we could probably talk for another two hours between ourselves <laughs> on talking about entrepreneurship and, and putting yourself out there. And, and uh, I, I did a really good, strong audit on your social media and your website before I came on. So uh, I can see where you've come from and, and what you're trying to achieve. And, and it's uh, 
it's aspiring to sort of see that. So I think we could probably talk about how uh, hospitality entrepreneurship and that sort of thing affects people. And but uh, I'm ready for the lightning round. All right, let's do it. We can always uh, maybe we can do um do a panel at Tails at some point when the uh, when the industry's back on tap. We can do a panel and uh, and maybe uh, dig a little deeper there. But so the the first question in our legendary lightning round is. And I'm sure this is going to be difficult for a bartender. Uh, what is your favorite cocktail of all time? And if you don't have a favorite, what's something you've been more obsessed with recently? Um, it's a toss. It's a it's a very close round between a Negroni and a Gimlet. Hmm. Um, that's mainly because at home I'm a lazy bartender. Um, I don't. Uh, I I always say that uh, bartending is like being a baseball player. You leave it all out on the pitch, and if you come home after a long shift, you're you you shouldn't be making yourself cocktails because that should be you should be so exhausted mentally and physically that you just want to pour yourself a whiskey and a beer. Um, but Negroni and uh, Gimlet, you can you can make in bigger batches. So come home, you do two ounces or an ounce and a half of each gin, sweet vermouth, Campari in a pint glass, stir it with your finger, chuck an orange slice in there. And you can sit on the couch for an hour and a half and, and watch TV and unwind. And same thing with the Gimlet. We're lucky enough here in BC, we have 80 distilleries in BC. And uh, I do a lot of work with BC distilleries, as you can see from my hat. So we have something like 200 and something gins in BC. And uh, we also have a really good cordial maker who makes an epic lime cordial. So like a really nice lime cordial. So it's just like two, two to one pint glass, stir it, sit on the couch. So I'm a really lazy bartender when it comes like that. Oh, I'm a super lazy bartender at home as well. Uh, <laughs> who makes that lime cordial? We should uh, we should not be shy to, to compliment. It's called Frostbite Syrup Company. Oh. Uh, it's based here in BC. And uh, yeah, like I can go ghetto with the old Roses lime cordial as well. But their lime cordial is is kind of spectacular. Yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating story of the of how the the lime cordial actually evolved over time. And you know, uh, uh, but uh, that's a that's a story for another episode. Wow. Um, yeah, I've I've had the chance to meet a few distillers and a few folks who are in the beverage space in British Columbia and between the Okanagan wine space and and uh, just everything that's going on there. It seems like you really do have a, a bounty of riches when it comes to uh, materials that you can work with. So, you know what? I think it, at least if you're if you're starting with really high quality stuff, I think it's okay after a long night to uh, to make yourself the lazy Gimlet or the lazy Negroni. 100%. All right. Next question. If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? Amaro. Always Amaro. And I know that's really hipster bartender thing to say these days, but uh I've always been a massive fan of Fernet Branco and a Mepicon and just Amaros in general. And really starting, you start getting down to the regionality of really specific Amaros to villages and regions and homemade stuff made by grandpa in this village. Uh, it just opens up this myriad of flavor profiles and um, pairing with food and all this sort of stuff. So Amaro always. Nice. Yeah, we have a great Amaro company here in Washington, D.C. called uh, Don Ciccio e Fili. And uh, Francesco, who runs it, actually, his he, he, the recipes that he uses are from his grandfather, who actually ran stills oh. on the Amalfi Coast uh, and made this stuff. Amazing. Made, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. So if you ever visit D.C., we've got a very, very strong Amaro scene here as well. Great love for this <laughs> stuff. Um and uh, you know what? Uh, I'm I'm a big Amaro fan as well. But the Fernet Flip is perhaps my favorite egg cocktail. 
you know, you can't, you just can't beat the way that the mint and the fernet kind of transforms when it meets the fat from the egg yolk. It's just like this yep. crazy way to, to, if you know fernet, you don't know it until you've had it in a fernet flip is kind of the, the way that I think about it. Um, all right, here's the Widowmaker question. If you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. And you can't say Philip Duff. This one, when I when I read when I read this one, uh, this was uh, one that I was just like, uh, this is kind of crazy. Um, this one was it is the Widowmaker. It's really difficult because you say the wrong person. Um, uh, I really try to think this one through, and um, you know what? I it's going to sound corny as hell, but uh, my wife and I don't share my industry as much as I do and uh, taking my wife to like the Savoy in London for the first time um, and having a martini by the guys there would um, that would be sort of my ultimate date because my wife and I've been together for 13 years but she's more always been the way of um, accepting me but never understanding me and so doing more drink related and food related things with my wife and taking her on the crawls that I go on to the places that of people that I know is something that we're trying to do for the next two years much more than we have in the past. I love that. That's such a good project to have as, you know, as a couple, because, you know, uh, obviously when, when one person is the creative, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm speaking from, from, for myself here, you know, I know, uh, with my wife and I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of the creative, I'm, I'm doing entrepreneurial things and, and she is the one who kind of keeps everything together and keeps, you know, makes, <laughs> make sure that things are functional and that I have the opportunity to do this stuff. And so it's, um, you know, we've been, we've been trying as well um especially uh since the quarantine to try since we're both at home now to try and like do some creative things around cocktails so that we can both mm -hmm. you know kind of enjoy them in a way that maybe we didn't have the time to previous to this so i, I definitely yeah that's that's a really nice thing and and who can do better than a martini at the savoy i mean <laughs> exactly it's exactly that's, that's Mount. That's the Mount Olympus uh, of martinis, right there. So, um, getting into some of the wrap-up questions here. What's a common or you actually might be one of the most difficult people for this? But is <laughs> also are there any traditional or common cocktail ingredients that you have never tasted, and why? This one's a tough one because out of all my travels, like you go to BCB in Berlin and that's just a massive show of everything. If you've, um, but the one ingredient, I, I did think this one through a lot. Um, I haven't tried any solid Batavia or rocks. That's the one that I don't get enough experience with. And I think I may have only tasted one in my whole entire career. Mm -hmm. um, it's just something we don't have here in BC. Um, it's, even in the US, it's not exactly the easiest ingredient in the world to get. But Batavia Rock is the one that uh, I'd like to delve into more and do like a solid like six to ten like tasting spread to really understand the nuances of what it should taste like. You know, ten years ago, Kashasa was two three skews on the market, and then you started tasting good Kashasa, and you're like, oh, okay there's the nuances between the brands and the regions and this is how it should taste you know usually the the one one example that you get in your market is usually not the best quality it's usually the the cheapest or the easiest to sell 
And so a Batavia Rock is the one that uh, I'd like to delve more into. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a tail seminar <laughs> right there. That's that's a tasting seminar <laughs> if I've ever heard of one. Um, fascinating ingredient. Obviously, it's uh, you know the, the cornerstone of, of a rock punch. Um, anybody who's interested mm-hmm. in learning more about it, you should pick up uh, David Wondrich's punch uh, and, and read a little bit more about it. But yeah, fascinating uh, ingredient. And you're right. Uh, here in North America, it's just not very widely available. So really cool answer. What's an unusual or controversial view or belief that you hold in the spirits and cocktail world? And I, I have a feeling this might not be as difficult to answer. Uh, there's no right way to make a cocktail, but there's plenty of wrong ways. Ooh. People get people really get hung up on the the Wandridge way or the the Groff way or the Reagan way. Whereas if you really research Reagan and 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 um and DeGroff and stuff like that. Um, they even changed their styles of making drinks over the last 20 years. You read their first books compared to now, it's because the industry has changed. We've learned new things like Dave Arnold has brought out amazing dilution charts and all these sort of things. And our ice has changed. Our ice was really good back in the day. It was hand chipped off a block and then it turned into average hotel pan ice. And then now we've got cold draft. And so um, that's usually the thing is there's no right way to make a cocktail, but there's plenty of wrong ways. And for me, leading teams and training, it's always, it's sort of a very democratic way of doing things because different regions have different recipes. Like the old fashioned in Wisconsin is very different to the old fashioned in New York, those sort of changes. So there's not a, they're not wrong. They're just different. And so um, whenever I take over a new bar or open up a new place, I get the team together. We bring out all the ingredients for classic cocktails and we put out a recipe on the table and we're like, this is the recipe for the sidecar. And then if anybody's got a different recipe, we make them all, we taste them all, we choose which one's the best. That's the new spec. So that's probably the most controversial one. I get in a lot of trouble for that one sometimes because people go, but, 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 and they try and quote someone or quote an article, but I just don't think there's a right way to make cocktails. There's just plenty of wrong ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I used to <laughs> teach poetry at the university level and my first lecture after I, after I'd figured out how to teach, uh, after for a couple semesters, my first intro lecture, uh, was always why I'm allowed to grade, grade your poems. And it's, yeah. it's not because there's there's a right way and a wrong way to write a poem. It's just that you need to you need to do the work in order for it to be a good product. And in doing the work, you discover all the wrong ways and therefore are able to eliminate all the wrong or bad or clunky things about the poem. And so if you do the work, then your end product is it doesn't matter what that end product looks like per se. It doesn't have to look like any one given thing. But one thing I can tell is somebody who's actually done the work versus somebody who hasn't done the work. And it's an inherently better product when you've done the work, when you've sat there with the London version of the sidecar and the Paris version of the sidecar and the half and half, you know, halfway in between the London and Paris version of the sidecar. You get your perfect sidecar by doing that work, you know, so that, that does really resonate with me. And I, I, I think personally, um, you know, I'm not going to be one of those people who, uh, gives you any, uh, any hard time for, for taking that approach because it is <laughs> thorough, right? It is. Yeah. 
Uh, well, Sean, this has been awesome. Uh, I've had a great time hanging out with you here. Uh, can you share with my listeners probably like three big key pieces of information here? Best way to contact you digitally in the social media space uh, or uh, via website, uh, the best way to find uh, your books, and then the uh, also uh, where to find your podcast. Uh, so on Instagram, probably the best one is just at Sean Sewell on, Inst- on Instagram. Very easy. S-H-A-W-N-S-O-O-L-E. Um, my website is sewellhospitality.com. And so you can just go to that as well. Um, and all my podcasts are up on my website as well in, in the, the little links up there. Um, but I'm available on all the, pa- all the platforms, I think 12 or 13 different platforms. So if you just type in post shift podcasts, you'll find it somewhere. So there, those were the three, the three big ones to be able to find me on. Right. And uh, uh, Amazon, obviously for books, uh, any, any, um, anywhere else Amazon, you'd like to yeah. plug? Um, Amazon. And if you're, if you're listening, I think Indigo in Canada has got a fair few floating around as well. Um, the U S obviously with this sort of, we got distribution, I think two weeks before COVID. So warehouses weren't shipping out to bookstores to start. So Amazon is probably the best, uh, the best website to be hitting up to, uh, get the book. Right. So, uh, for all you listening at home, uh, please seek out great Northern cocktails, use it as both a recipe guide for inspiration for the projects that you're inevitably doing at home while we're all stuck here, uh, during, while we try and wait out this pandemic. And then also, uh, you can certainly use that as a reference guide to figure out where to visit when you, uh, next travel to Canada and need a good cocktail. Uh, so Sean, again, thanks so much for being on the podcast and, uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Pleasure having you on. Yeah. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, sir. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at modern bar cart. One would be to tell your friends and family. If you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start cocktail revolution here and by spreading the word you're helping us fight the good fight you can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear also definitely follow us on instagram and facebook at modern bar cart for cocktail porn recipes and entertaining tips and keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with production assistance by Rachel Christian, editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, 
Cocktail and bartending insights by Sean Sewell of Sewell Hospitality Group and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.